Well, as we turn to this, just to uh, pause and use an old Anglican prayer to help us. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we are not, make us. What we have not, give us. For your Son's sake. Amen. The Bible doesn't leave us guessing either about the origins of things or about the end of things. And it is quite wonderful that we have this closing book in the Bible, a book that is often intriguing to the point of danger and at the same time neglected to the uh, diminishing of our own progress in the faith. Suffice it to say this morning as we dip into it that this, along with the rest of the Bible, reminds us that the history of our world is ultimately defined by salvation history. That all that is taking place in the world can only ultimately and properly be understood by paying attention to the Bible. That, of course, is not taught in university history departments, but nevertheless, it is the claim that the Bible makes for itself. All of the great movements of our world, historically and in the present context, need always to be viewed in light of the story of redemption that is given us in the Bible from the very beginning all the way to the very end. So, for example, when you turn to Genesis chapter 3 and you're introduced to the conflict which is described as immediately taking place between the serpent and the seed of the woman, that conflict issue runs the entire way, not simply through the Bible, but throughout the entire history of humanity. And it is ultimately impossible to discover the meaning and significance of great movements in history if we take our eyes off that conflict. At the same time, the confusion that is described in Genesis 11, where the Tower of Babel is built as men seek to aspire to Godhead itself and as they seek to advance their cause. And you remember God comes and he introduces confusion and he scatters the nations and he disintegrates language and so on. Again, the Bible giving us a vitally important explanation of what has been happening and what will happen. And then, as you turn forward into Genesis chapter 12 and relax, we're not going uh, through the entire Bible. Uh, You'll say it would be about quarter past three before we get to Revelation. No, it's all right. There's just three C's. One is conflict. One is confusion. And one is covenant. It is impossible to understand history and our world without bearing, paying attention to these three things. That the God who in his judgment scattered the peoples is the God who in his grace comes and establishes a covenant with people. And indeed, the story of God's intervention in the lives of men and women, the story of his faithfulness and of his love, is the story of his free decision to reach into all the peoples of the world and to create a people that are his very own, his own possession from every tribe and nation and people and tongue. And although it may seem slightly simplistic, I think it is accurate to say that the story of the entire Bible may be understood in relationship to these opening chapters of Genesis and then to this great conclusion 
part of which we have read here in Revelation 7. In other words, the promise that God made to Abraham that through his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed, which finds its great fulfillment in these dramatic scenes in Revelation, is really the story of all that God has done and is doing in his world. And the significance of 200 years in the scope of eternity, the significance of the history of a church like this, can ultimately and only be understood in relationship to these things. Now, it is important, too, that when we come to Revelation, that we keep in mind that although it is a book filled with visions and with plagues and with drama, it has not been given to us by God to perplex those of us who are living in century 21. But the book has been written and provided so that those who were living in century 1 might understand that God was in control of things. That they might understand in relationship to their lives, persecution and failure and disappointment and all the ravaging impact of a world that was turned in on them and against them, that they might learn from this book that Jesus Christ is the triumphant king about whom we have already been singing. And so, in light of that, I want to ask two questions. First of all, to say something of what then this means, the passage that we have read, and then to say something concerning why it matters. What then is the meaning of what we have before us here? It is a dramatic picture. And uh, here, of course, in Edinburgh, as in London and in other great cities, you have the opportunity of these wonderful galleries. Uh, my wife and I, along with others, were in Cardiff earlier in the week, and we went into a gallery there and uh, spent time uh, viewing uh, a variety of paintings, many of them fairly vast in their size. And as a result of that, you find yourself focusing on one or two aspects of the painting. It's virtually impossible to take in the great scope of it all. And as you stand and look at it, your eye is inevitably drawn one place or another. Well, when you read Revelation, when you read Revelation 7, it's almost inevitable that your eye will be drawn to certain aspects. And time allows us only to look at two. First of all, to look at the Lamb, and then to look at the multitude. I want to identify just three aspects concerning each. If you read carefully, as I'm sure you did, you would notice that the writer brings us back again and again to the Lamb. It is almost as if he is preoccupied in his writing with this Lamb at the center of things. So that the readers will be reminded in each paragraph, as it were, that it is important to have our eyes taken in this direction. And when we're introduced to this Lamb, you will notice that he is the Lamb who is in the center of things and by whose blood the multitude have washed their robes and have been cleansed. And I want you to notice, and we say it just simply in order that it might be fixed in our minds, that the Lamb to whom we are introduced here in Revelation 7 is a Lamb who saves by substitution. That this Lamb is a substitute. Once again, it is impossible to come to the picture in Revelation 7 without recognizing the lamb motif, if you like, that runs all the way through the Bible. And when you go back again into Genesis and that dramatic scene with Abraham and his son Isaac, 
and the inevitability of the question that comes from the lips of Isaac. But Father, we have wood, we have all the potential for a fire, but isn't there one thing missing, Dad? And then the father, looking on his son and saying, the Lord himself will provide a lamb, my son. And when we read our Bibles, it's supposed to ring a little bell for us. And as we read on further, we say to ourselves, I wonder if this isn't somehow or another tied to Genesis 22. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is dumb, so he opens not his mouth. And the word of the prophet sets forward the picture again. And the New Testament opens, and out onto the stage of history strides John the Baptist closing out the prophets of the old and introducing the drama of the new. And with his followers behind him, he sees Christ on the other side of the river. And remember what he says? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when we read in Revelation 7 here, we read of the Lamb, the Lamb who by the shedding of his blood has made an atoning sacrifice for the sins of his people. And so it is that in a way that we cannot fully understand, even when we have applied our best minds to it, even when we have opened our hearts the widest to it, in a way we cannot fully understand, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb, in his death, placed himself where sinners deserve to be. And by that sacrifice, he makes it possible for our robes to be cleansed. Secondly, we see him not only as the one who is a substitute, but as the one who sits and sits in victory. You will notice that salvation, verse 10, belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And as you read on through the, the chapter there in verse 15, these folks are before the throne. They serve him day and night. They serve the one who sits on the throne the one who will spread his tent over them. And of course, the picture here is the picture that we have classically in the book of Hebrews, where all of the contrast is made between the old covenant and the new, between the priests who continually offered their sacrifices and then went to the end of the line, still standing, recognizing that they must come again and again to make an atoning sacrifice. And the writer to the Hebrews wonderfully puts it, doesn't he, in Revelation 10, in Hebrews 10, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. You see, what these scattered and beleaguered believers needed in the first century is actually what we need. They didn't need a lot of self-help literature. They didn't need books on how to bring up your teenagers. They didn't need books on how to fix your finances. What they needed to know was that Christ had triumphed. That what he had done as a substitute had received the Father's approbation. And that the significance of literally everything was tied to the fact that Christ was a triumphant Savior. And so, as things became dark and as they became difficult, 
as family life unfolded, as the drama of their individual experiences went on its way. This was the great reminder. The writer says, you need to see the lamb. Are you looking at the picture? He who is our substitute. He is the one who is seated. And thirdly, he is the one who is the shepherd of his people. It's an interesting turn of language, isn't it? I think you probably noticed it in verse 17. An intriguing exchange of roles for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. The lamb becomes the shepherd. The one who is the lamb becomes the shepherd of his people. Again, tying us back, not simply to all that we have of Jesus as the good shepherd in the New Testament, but again, the fulfillment of all that was provided for us in the Old Testament, where God is described as the one in Isaiah 40, who tends his flock like a shepherd, who gathers the lambs close to his heart, who gently leads those that have young. Keep that picture in your mind's eye and look at the lamb. A substitute, seated, a shepherd. And look at this huge big company. Look at this big crowd. Verse 9 again. After this I looked and there before me was a multitude, a huge crowd that no one could count. The number that John heard in verse 4 is 144,000. The number that he saw in verse 9 is incalculable. There has been more written about this juxtaposition than probably about any other thing, and the largest part of it probably quite unhelpful. I've concluded long since that it is a description of the same number of people. One from God's perspective in absolute perfection, the square of 12 by the cube of 10, a perfect number, from God's perspective, it's just exactly as I planned it from all of eternity. From a human perspective, it's an incalculable number. From God's perspective, it is all the Israel of God, all those that he's gathered in, all the children of Abraham. From a human perspective, they're coming from everywhere. They seem to have all kinds of faces and shapes. They speak all kinds of languages. Look at this incalculable number multinational incalculable number and how do we see them one we see them singing singing they are crying out verse 10 in a loud voice and look at what they're crying here is the foundation of the hymn that we haven't sung in a while where I come from which begins with harps and with vials there stand a great throng and you remember the question which is the question here that is asked by one of the elders who are these people who are these people? And the hymn writer gives us the answer. All these once were sinners, defiled in his sight, but now arrayed in pure garments, with praise they unite. And what do they do? They sing. They sing. The singing of God's people is always tied to the impact of the saving of God's people. And the saving of God's people is always tied to the proclaiming of God's word. And that's why classically when Charlotte Chapel was about to disintegrate and go away at the turn of the previous century. And God came and stirred up the people here and in other places. They sang. But they didn't sing silly songs. They sang the song of the redeemed. Salvation belongs to God alone, so that others believing this new song might sing. Do you see this big crowd? Can you see them in your mind's eye? Singing. Secondly, serving. They're clothed and they're cleansed. That's what he says in verse 14. 
The clothes they wear is that righteousness, the gift of God in Jesus. And they serve him, notice, night and day. Simply an idiom that means in an unceasing way or without pause. For those clever little boys that are about to go home for lunch and say it's said in Revelation 7 that they served him night and day. But I thought it also said in Revelation that there is no night and day. What are you supposed to do with that, Grandpa? So let me just give you your answer. It is an idiom. And it is idiomatic to say they never stopped. They never stopped. In other words, all that is anticipated in Revelation chapter 12, where the lives of the followers of Jesus are offered as a living sacrifice, it finds its fulfillment in this dramatic scene as they serve God, worshipping God, night and day. They are singing. They are serving. Verse 16, they are satisfied. They are satisfied. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. What a wonderful picture. Jesus, remember, when he had been in his earthly ministry, said, he who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. And if you look carefully, you'll see in this big picture, you'll see the face of the lady from the well. If you look carefully, she is in this picture. Remember the lady had five, five husbands and a live-in lover? The lady who was looking for satisfaction, presumably. And when Jesus offered to her the water, the living water, so that she would never thirst again, her life was changed. Well, that is a huge big picture. That's all we can say. To say something of its meaning, that it is about the Lamb, the one who is substitute, the one who is our Savior, the one who sits in victory. To say something about this multitude. But here's the real question. Why does it even even matter? Why does it matter? Say something concerning its significance. I, I got up fairly early this morning. I was out and about. I met a fellow in the town who's wearing a tracksuit, and we engaged in conversation. And, you know, it very, after about 30 minutes, uh, just as we walked down a road street here together, it, it actually came to this. He didn't ask it in these terms, but he essentially said to me, he said, does, does, does all this stuff about Jesus actually matter? Does it matter? In fact, this is what he said. He says, when I'm dead and dusted... Is there anything more? Hey, just a fellow in the street wearing a tracksuit. You see, it does matter. And let me tell you why it matters. Number one, because this passage of Scripture turns our gaze to the Lord Jesus Christ as the ascended and reigning King. The ascended and reigning King. It turns our gaze to him in the way that the writer to the Hebrews says, we always must be looking to Jesus. So that when we view the events of our individual lives, when we view all that has crashed in upon a Western democracy in the last wee while, we always must come back again and again at the beginning and the end of the day to the picture of Christ who is the one at the very center of our gaze. I often think it's strange that in the ascension of Jesus, the angel's question to the disciples is fascinating, isn't it? Why do you stand gazing up into heaven? <laughs> like, what? What do you mean? 
maybe for angels this happens all the time, but this is really unusual. We haven't had one of these before. What do you mean, why do we stand gazing up? Well, I think it's this, that the angels knew that Jesus had explained about his going and about his coming, and he'd given them a job to do. And the angel essentially says, there's no time for standing gazing up. It's vital, not only because it turns our gaze to Jesus, it's vital, secondly, because it reminds us that God is sovereign over all the scheme of things. That God is sovereign over all the scheme of things. That answers, of course, the question regarding significance. If we think ourselves too significant, which is a great danger, or if we think our church too significant, which may be a danger, we just have to read a little history. We just have to go out and walk around Edinburgh and look at the plaques. Just go across into Charlotte Square. You imagine, you imagine uh, Mrs. Bell saying to Alexander, why do you keep fiddling with those things on a, ra- on a rainy afternoon? Why, what are you doing with all that stuff? Who are you shouting down to, Alexander? What is all that about? And maybe she even said to him cynically, you know, in a hundred years, what will it matter? Alexander said, they're going to have iPods in the 21st century. <laughs> You see, it is, it is cynicism that says, in a hundred years, what will it matter? In a hundred years, it will matter. It all matters. All your days and all your deeds matter. They all matter. So when we're tempted to think ourselves too significant, we remind ourselves that all flesh is like grass and the glory of man like the flower of the field and it will eventually blow our memory away. When we're tempted to feel ourselves to be entirely insignificant, believing that the last load of laundry was about enough to kill us, or the last piece that we wrote for our university courses was enough to end us and so on. When we're tempted to be lost in the middle of it all, feeling it totally insignificant, that we'll never even be a footnote in history, that ultimately all our yesterdays with Shakespeare have lighted fools the way to dusty death, we have to come back to Revelation 7 and say, no, 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 wait a minute now. What do I see here? I see Christ in all of his ascended glory. And therefore I understand that God is sovereign over all the schemes of man and over all the affairs of time. And thirdly and finally, it is significant not simply because it turns our gaze to Christ in his victory or that it turns our attention to God in his sovereignty, but it turns our attention always to the gospel in its necessity. For you see, the Bible is a book about Jesus. It's all ultimately about him. And when we come to Christ, we come inevitably to the cross. And when we come to the cross, we come to this terrific story of good news. And if you have been a believer for a long time, you and I both need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. To remind ourselves that all of our standing before God is unalterably fixed in the work of Jesus. And having preached the gospel to ourselves, we resolve with the help of God to go out and declare this gospel to others. And Charlotte Chapel's history, in every dimension of its effectiveness and every successful era, 
is directly tied, and to this day, to the fact that it has been and remains a gospel-centered church. That it would be happy, I think, to affirm the words of Smeaton in his great book on the atonement when he writes, to convert one sinner from his way is an event of greater importance than the deliverance of a whole kingdom from temporal evil. I'm not sure you can get many contemporary 20-year-old American Christians to affirm that statement. And the future of world missions is directly tied to it. The multitude that is pictured here in Revelation 7 is not assembled automatically. Hence, how will they hear unless someone preaches? And how will they go unless they are sent? And we mustn't confuse telling people about their need of the gospel or telling them about the benefits of the gospel with actually telling them the gospel. Without telling them that another has died in their place. That someone else has taken all of the damage and all of the sin and all of the rebellion. And that even on their best day, they would never be able to put themselves in a right standing with God. Now just then as we conclude, think about this picture in terms of individuals. Here is this multitude that no one can count that he looks and sees. And I just, because I'm a simple soul, I just start to see faces in the crowd. All, all, all my heroes from Sunday school are up there. The wee man, the wee cheat, you know, that was up the tree. You see him if you look. He's up, he's up in the top left-hand corner of the picture, Zacchaeus. And the lady I mentioned before, she's there as well. And do you remember the big black man coming back from the conference in Jerusalem, reading his Bible? He's up there too. Fantastic. And do you remember the man on the cross? who in a moment of great revelation said to his friend, you better be quiet. Don't you fear God? We are getting what our sins deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Lord, would you put me in that big picture too? He's there. Oh, it would be very tempting to start going through all the old ladies' names that I remember from Charlotte Chapel. Miss Sibbald's there, the lady from the early morning fellowship, the Thursday morning fellowship, the tea lady, Miss Sibbald's there, so-and-so's there. But I'm not going to impress you with the three people whose names I remember from all those years. <laughs> but I am going to just give you one in conclusion, and that is one of the, one of the elders, Mr. Mr. Barron's sister-in-law, whose name is escaping. And when she suffered a significant stroke, as some of you will remember, and we had the privilege of visiting her routinely, unable to actually communicate herself, except in sort of a strange form, a hybrid of half language and no language at all, there were certain songs that she wanted us to sing in her company. And this is the one I remember most of all. And I conclude with this as an encouragement to each one of us in relationship to the tiny part that we play in the unfolding drama of redemption. 
A story of God's purpose from all of eternity being worked out through the course of time and entirely focused on Jesus and entirely about the gospel. And it goes like this. We are building day by day as the moments pass away a temple that this world cannot see and every victory won by grace will be sure to find a place in that building for eternity. That is the significance of all that Christ has accomplished and all that he continues to do in his people. For in some way that we cannot fully comprehend, on that day, when we are included in that scene, there will be no preoccupation with our buildings or with our history. Because we will be consumed with the vision of Christ in all of his wonderful fullness. And with that vision glorious, our longing eyes will be blessed. Of course, that phrase comes from our concluding hymn. And as you take your uh, places on your feet, we're going to use that as our closing praise this morning.